Hello, I am Earl Fontanelle, and this is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Today, we're speaking with Gideon Bohack, professor of Jewish philosophy and related matters at the University of Tel Aviv, and a man who really knows a thing or two about magical traditions, and even more specifically, late antique Jewish magical traditions. Gideon, thank you so much for coming to speak with us. My pleasure. The last time we saw Jewish magic, per se, uh, was many, many episodes ago. We're looking at the, the Second Temple period, the Jewish culture really under the Hellenistic dynasties, the early Roman Empire. Um, and we, one of the things we talked about is how, on the one hand, you have these terms like magia in Greek, magia in Latin. They have their own meanings. They have legal meanings. They have real serious construals in given societal contexts. But then we have evidence that within Judaism, they have their own terms. And sometimes there's a, a poor overlap. So a term that might be considered magia by whether it be an early Christian or a Roman jurist would be considered just helpful intervention by a Jew, let's say. So what kind of methodological considerations do we need to take into account before we start talking about Jewish magic in late antiquity. Without getting into the eight-hour-long debate about whether magic is even a useful term or anything like that, but just as some basic guidelines. Yeah, so, so I would do, I mean, I think the most basic methodological issue or, or concept to take into consideration is something you mentioned in one of your earlier podcasts, and this is the whole distinction between emic and etic. That is, what are we talking about? Are we talking, are we, when we're talking about magic, are we using our own terms as modern scholars who look, let's say, at the ancient Jewish material from the outside? Or do we want to try to see and understand how ancient Jews thought about things that we might consider magic? So, so this is, you know, the first would be an ethic perspective. That is me as a scholar saying magic is, and now let's look for what fits into that category. And the second would be an emic consideration. That is, let's see when they, they don't use the word magic so much. They will use Hebrew words like kishuf and ksamim and nachash and various other words. And let's try from their text to understand what was the meaning of these terms and what was their attitudes towards these activities. So if they describe an exorcist in action, do they think of this exorcist as a magician or do they think of him as some, something of a healer or something like that? So this is the most important methodological issue. Really, what perspective do we want to, to adopt? And my own view is that we should adopt both. That is that we should, on the one hand, speak about magic in the ancient world and explain what we mean by magic and how we look for these phenomena and why we gather them together under one umbrella. And on the other hand, try to say, look, these guys, you know, the people we are studying, we know something about how they thought about such issues, and their thinking clearly was very different from ours. Mm. Now, when we say we know how they thought about these issues, do we know this from a very complex sifting of evidence from old texts like the Talmud and things like this? So like, this is kind of a very careful reconstruction of ideas around practices in antiquity that we presumably our evidence doesn't go as far back as we would like, but we can project backwards to some degree. Is that the state of affairs? It's, it's more complicated, of course, you know, it's always like that when you do ancient history, when you do any history, but especially ancient history, that you come to the source with a certain number of questions that really interest you. 
And the sources are willing to answer only some of these questions. Having said that, I should say that we do have a lot of evidence for Jews in late antiquity. You know, the rabbinic literature, you mentioned the Talmud, it's a very big text and it speaks about a lot of things, many, many different things. So if we want to know what the Talmud or what rabbinic Judaism or the rabbis of late antiquity thought about, let's say, about demons or about exorcisms or about healing with spells or about various other activities, we can extract from their materials a lot of information about what they thought about these activities. And when we then look at materials, at objects and texts that we would classify as magical, again, we can see what Jews were doing at the time. And we can, in many cases, get a notion of why they thought it would work or what they thought they were doing. And especially in in the realm of magic, it's also easier in the sense that in theory, magic is forbidden by the Hebrew Bible and magic is forbidden by rabbinic Jews. And it's very clear that the people who did the activities that we think of as magic, in most cases, did not think of them, of these activities as something that is forbidden, as something that is liable, you know, in theory, it's liable to a death penalty, according to the Jewish legal system. And yet it's very clear that no one was executed. You you know, we have one famous story of someone who hangs 80 witches in Ashkelon. But beyond that, we don't really have stories of Jews who are being persecuted by other Jews because they were doing magic and, you know, let's execute them in line with Jewish law. And it's very clear that the Jews themselves, I I would, you know, I I would joke, I would say they're very good Jews, you know, in, in scare quotes, good Jews, who are engaged in all these activities, and they clearly think that they are doing something that's good and positive and, and legally permissible. So it means that for them, this is not magic. This is not. This falls under a different category. With magic, you would ask them, they would in sometimes say, no, there are evil witches in the world, and we're actually fighting them. So it's this kind of activity. There are people who do magic, but we are actually trying to fight against it. Various explanations like that. And you can extract them from the sources we have. This is a brilliant point. I I think this is, by and large, true more generally, right? Almost no one in antiquity that we're aware of says, I'm a goes in Greek, or I'm a magician, I'm a necromancer. Like, this isn't something you say. And this is true in the Middle Ages. This is, I think, maybe the only time this isn't true is in the modern day, where you get people who are actually, like, worshipping the devil and and doing this sort of countercultural embracing of sorcery and goetia and this sort of thing but in the old days everyone says what we do is not magic or if we do say you occasionally get someone saying what we do is magic in 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 latin or greek but magic is not what you think it is it's actually philosophy or it's actually uh science right so you get some people like that like the theologists and the neoplatonists and you know about them i saw that you already did some things about them and in, in the in the PGM, which you also mentioned in some of your sessions, in the Greek magical papyri, you do get people who say, you know, this is holy magic, or we showed this holy magic to the emperor so and so, and he was really amazed. And, but so so you do find things like that in in Greco-Egyptian magical texts. In the Jewish magical texts, you will not find them. So if you look to the in the Jewish magical texts of late antiquity, you will not find people who will explicitly say what we are doing is kishuf which is one Hebrew word for magic, and we are very proud of it. You know, this is holy kishuf. This is great kishuf. Right. They wouldn't say things like that. So the rebranding so, of kishuf doesn't happen. You just deny it. You just say, we're not doing kishuf. That's what you evil witches do. You deny it or you ignore it. You just, it's a moot question. But but you never come out and say what I'm doing is kishuf. Of course, in the modern age, 
you know, in the modern world, as you said before, and the same is true in Israel. If you come to Israel, I can show you people who will say, I'm a Mechashefa. But this is a phenomenon of the last 30 years. This is a new age phenomenon. It was completely unheard of in earlier Jewish history. Right. Just like in England, there's plenty of people in the town, small town where I live who are witches. And 100, 200 years ago, that would have gotten you killed. Now, we have exactly. a lovely and nuanced picture here of what we're talking about. What is our evidence base for late antique Jewish magic, right? It's it's not as big as we'd like, because evidence is never as big as we'd like, but it's still, it's a very interesting, variegated corpus of stuff. And there's all there's really a lot of interesting material. Yes. And, and this is one of the things that I really like about Jewish magic in late antiquity. And in contrast with Jewish magic in earlier periods, because if you ask me about Jewish magic in, in biblical times, I would say, well, I know what the Hebrew Bible says about magic, but other than that, I have very little evidence. If you ask me about Jewish magic in the Second Temple period, I have more evidence, but still far from enough. But one of the things that happens is that Jewish magic in late antiquity apparently becomes more and more scribal. That is, people begin to write more and more texts, more and more magical texts for, for individual clients. So just as you, you know, amulets and, and magic bowls, we can talk about that later. But these are objects that are produced for by, by experts. They're clearly produced by experts. They're produced for specific individuals who come to these experts and ask for their help. And luckily for, for me as an historian, these people don't just say, okay, I'll say a spell over you and that will solve your problem. But they say, I will write a text for you and you take it with you or you even wear it on your body. So I'm very happy about that. And I'm even happier that some of the writing surfaces they use are durable writing surfaces because they clearly wrote amulets also on parchment and on papyrus. These were Papyrus was the common writing material. But papyrus in Israel slash Palestine is, you know, it rots in the ground after 100 years. So there clearly were many papyrus amulets and papyrus magical texts and things like that. We don't have them. On the other hand, they also wrote uh, magical texts on lead, on metal lamella, on, on small sheets, very, very thin sheets of gold, silver, sometimes bronze, sometimes copper, in rare cases also lead. And these can survive because this is just etched on a piece of silver, and you know, silver doesn't rot, or a piece of gold. And then we find it in archaeological excavations. In, in Babylonia, they also had the practice or adopted the practice of writing in ink, but on the inside of clay bowls. And as a result, again, the clay bowls, you know, clay is a durable material, it doesn't rot. So some of these bowls got effaced over time, the ink faded and got effaced. But many of them, there are about 2,000 bowls like this that are extant. So we have a lot of evidence for ancient Jewish magic that really comes from antiquity. That is, this is someone in the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th century who's writing a text, an expert, writing a, what I would call a finished product. That is something you take home with you. And then, you know, 1,500 years later, we come and excavate that out of the ground as it was, really, as it was written, you know, in the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th century AD. So these two are, are really major sources of information. We also have manuscripts from later period, especially from the Cairo Geniza, which, again, you mentioned the materials there date from, let's say, the 8th or 9th century onwards, but 
you often get copies of copies of earlier texts. So there too, you get some magical texts that clearly, you know, they were again copied in the 9th or 10th or 11th century, but there are copies of copies of texts that were already in circulation in the Jewish world in the 4th, 5th, 6th century CE or AD, and that's why we can use them too in reconstructing ancient Jewish magic. So we have a lot of evidence, a lot of different types of evidence, and we can, of course, compare it also with the materials we find in the Greek magical papyri, which also stem from, from you know, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century, and sometimes also with Syriac magical texts and with other magical texts from late antiquity. So we can really create a, a big and a nuanced picture with, with many specific details of how how the system worked, you know, how, how people were producing these texts and how what practices they were using. So we have amulets of various sorts, and um, one of the only kinds of Latin magical material we have from late antiquity is also the, the defixionis, the, mm -hmm. the curse tablet, so-called, mostly on lead. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So metal makes a big difference, non-ferrous mm -hmm. non metal. We have mm -hmm. the incantation bowls, so-called, which is this incredible corpus of bowls with inscriptions in them, sometimes with really cool pictures as well, sometimes just with mm -hmm. this sort of spiraling writing. And mm -hmm. these mostly come from the Sasanian realm, or they all come from mm -hmm. the Sasanian realm, I gather. And just to clarify for our listeners, when we talk about Sasanian Babylonia, we're talking mm -hmm. about a region now. We're not talking about a political entity. Forget about Babylonia as an empire. That's mm -hmm. long, long ago. We're talking about a, a region of Mesopotamia, a lot mm -hmm. of Jews there. And last but not least, we have some books. Now, there's one book in particular that I would love to talk to you about while we're in the sources section of our talk, which is the Sefer HaRazim. This, Because this is a fascinating text. It has a fascinating history in scholarship as well as what we sort of think of mm -hmm. its history in, in antiquity. What about this book? This, first of all, as you said, it's a very interesting book with a very interesting history of publication. It's a book that is mentioned in various medieval texts, but was really unknown to scholarship until the 1960s, when Mordechai Margaliot sort of pieced it out from various fragments that he found in the Cairo Geniza and in other collections of, of manuscripts. By the way, I don't know if you know, but it aroused quite a lot of interest. I found on, in the archive of the New York Times, there was, a, there was something there, there were two pieces on how Dr. Margaliot found this very interesting ancient Jewish text, and he's going to talk about it at the Jewish Theological Seminary, etc., etc. And then after his talk at the Jewish Seminary, there was another report in the New York Times. I, I can send you that material. It's very interesting. And people who have access to the archive of, of the New York Times can find it. So this clearly aroused quite a lot of interest. And the reason is because the text that Margaliot reconstructed, it has since been reconstructed once again by Peter Schaeffer and, and, and Bill Rebiger. And what you get in this text, you get a very elaborate text that is written in Hebrew and in very good Hebrew. So this is a, written by someone who is really an intelligent Jewish writer who, who knows his Hebrew well, who knows his Bible well. And that person is writing a text that on the one hand, sounds very Jewish and sounds even very close to Jewish mystical circles, you know, the Hechalot and Merkava literature. And on the other hand, has all these blatantly magical recipes 
for all kinds of aims, including if you want to kill people, if you want to destroy the walls of a wall city, if you want to drown a ship in the sea, all kinds of things like that that normally we would not think Jews were doing in late antiquity. And it's not just the aims of the recipes, but also the practices include some very things that to us would seem very non, non-Jewish, or at least non-normative in the Jewish world, including, you know, you, you, sacrifice a, you sacrifice a lion at some point, you slaughter a lion cub, or you pray, this, is, this was the most sensational part, you pray to the Greek god Helios mm. to be revealed to you and to do all kinds of things for you. And, you know, when this was discovered, Again, it, it aroused a lot of interest, and there were many people who felt, including, by the way, Mordechai Margaliot himself. It's very interesting because he was an Orthodox Jew, and he keeps on saying, he wrote a long introduction to, to the book when he edited it, and he says, look, I'm disgusted by this book. Jews should not be doing this kind of stuff. You know, Jews should not be mentioning Aphrodite and praying to Helios and involved in gambling and circus races. And, you know, this is really disgusting stuff. He says that very explicitly. But this also, and and then he says something like, this also sheds light on what, you know, bad Jews were doing in antiquity. And we need to understand that in order to better understand what kind of forces the rabbis were fighting against. You know, how they were trying to get these bad Jews who wrote Sefer HaRazim to become good Jews like the rabbis. So this is all in Margaliot's introduction. It's, it's an amazing document. But the book itself also is, is very interesting. And, and there's no doubt in the book you see a lot of influence of the Greek magic of papyri and of Greco-Egyptian magic. And, and Margaliot knew all that. He, he writes that too in the introduction. You get these Jews who know Hebrew well, who know Greek well enough to understand Greek or Greco-Egyptian magical texts, and who clearly want to try to Judaize what they find in the Greco-Egyptian magical tradition. So they say they take the recipes and they take similar, similar techniques to what they find in the pagan magic of their time. They eliminate some stuff because they eliminate a lot of the Greek gods and the Egyptian gods. There's no Isis and there's no Horus and there's no Zeus and all these things. They keep a lot of the other stuff, like, you know, the burning of incense and the prayer to Helios and other things. And then they add the very elaborate Jewish structure with seven heavens and with praises of God and with a long introduction explaining how this book was given to Adam and how it was used by Noah when he built his ark and how King Solomon learned from it. So you take all this alien wisdom and you Judaize it, and you create a, a very unique text that is really quite amazing. It is a fantastic text. It's the first thing we've seen in this podcast, not only in the study of Jewish material, but in the study of magic generally. It's our first really substantial magical book. I don't want to use this anachronistic term grimoire because it's later, but it's, a, it's got everything. It's got recipes check. Mm-hmm. It's got a cosmology very much mm-hmm. in, in the thought world of the um, apocalyptic ascent with multiple kind of heavens leading up to God's throne room that we're familiar with from so much second temple and also then early Christian material. So that's the thought world we're in. There's these angelic hierarchies. Each of them has kind of 
special magical stuff that they're good at that you might want to memorize their names because they could be useful for this and that. Um, and it's drawing on a lot of non-Jewish material. This is great because we know, of course, in the Greek magical papyri, the most popular god is Yao. So it's, it's very clear that this um, magical texts that were happening, magical traditions that were happening in Greco-Egypt were very interested in what the Jews were doing. And here's our, the, our piece of evidence up from the other side, that the Jews are very interested in what magical culture more generally is doing. Maybe, maybe from a just what works perspective, maybe from other perspectives that we can't really conjecture at this stage. So this book is fantastic, right? And this book has a Nachleben, right? It goes, we, we know it originally from sort of medieval tradition, but mm -hmm. it's been, Margulioth has done the work of really bringing it into late antiquity and saying, okay, the origins of this book, even though we don't have a full late antique manuscript of this book, because we never, hardly ever do with ancient texts, mm -hmm. it goes back to late antiquity. But it's, it's going to be a really, really important manual of magic manual, and also arguably mysticism, depending on what you mean by mysticism, going forward into the Middle Ages. Fantastic. I fully agree. I mean, we know, first of all, we know that it was translated into Arabic. That is, we, we have it in the Cairo Geniza in, in what we call Judeo-Arabic, that is Arabic written in Hebrew letters. And it's very clear that this is Jews in medieval Cairo already, or in the medieval Near East, who are very interested in that text. And who wanted, you know, their Hebrew is not good enough. They speak Arabic in their daily life. So they want it translated into Arabic and they have a translation. We then find it in some Arabic, perhaps Christian Arabic manuscripts, even from modern Egypt. So we have that too. It's also translated into Latin in the Middle Ages. And that Latin version is clearly read by many Christians in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, either directly or through adaptations and, and you know, other versions of the text. So, as you say, it's a text that clearly has a very long Nachleben and, and a very influential text. Um, but all of those iterations, all of those translations and then cultural streams are things we're going to want to talk about again when we kind of move forward chronologically in the podcast. I'm especially intrigued by the okay. Latin one, right? Because... When you yeah. get into Latin in the Middle Ages, you're looking at a very, in some ways, a very parvenu intellectual, un unlike when, when things are translated into Arabic, we're talking about the, the most cosmopolitan kind of broad scale culture in the Mediterranean by far and Central Asia. Mm -hmm. You expect ideas to be circulating everywhere. Things are much more narrow to some degree. I don't want to overemphasize how narrow they are, but they're more narrow in the Latin speaking Western Christian world. And that's mm -hmm. so th when you see alchemical works, when you see astrological works, when you see magical works being translated, especially magical works that might be suspiciously Jewish to certain Christian perspectives, mm -hmm. you have to s sit down and say, okay, what's going on here? Who's reading this? Who's copying this? Is it okay. monks copy? I mean, who's doing this work? This is really interesting. So we'll have to come back to that stuff. So we have our methodological basis beautifully covered. We have some evidence covered from, from late antiquity. So a question is that I would ask you is, how possible is it to make general kind of statements, maybe typologies about late antique Jewish magic? What can we say about it in a kind of general way that, is, that isn't too general as to be meaningless, but also not oversimplifying things? I think there are several things we can say. And one method of arriving at such statements or such generalizations 
is to compare it with other magical traditions of late antiquity, especially what we find in the Greek magical papyri and throughout Greek magical texts. You mentioned the defixiones, we could mention magical gems. There are many, you know, the, the Greco-Egyptian or the Greco-Roman magical tradition is very well known to us. And when we compare it with the Jewish magical tradition, which is or with the contemporaneous Jewish magical texts and objects, there are several things we can say. One thing we can say is that it's mostly aniconic in the sense that if you look even at the Greek magical papyri, you find magical texts all over the place, but you also find some images. If you look at Greek uh, magical gems, they're the central element is the figure. And you know, we have about 5,000 magical gems with Greek inscriptions on them. So that there would be an image of an Egyptian god or some hybrid god or some Greek god or a combination or all kinds of things or some animals and crocodiles and ibises and whatever. And then there would be some inscription. And of course, we know why this is. Both the Greek culture and Egyptian culture have a lot of emphasis on iconography and a very rich artistic tradition. The Jewish tradition in general, not just the magical tradition, is of course much more careful with images. You know, Jews don't like images. In the bowls, in the incantation bowls that we mentioned before, you find images of demons, which are very interesting. But outside of the bowls, you hardly ever find images in Jewish magical texts. You hardly ever find instructions for producing images in ancient Jewish magical texts. And on the other hand, the tradition, and again, like the Jewish magical tradition, like much of Judaism, is very logocentric. That is, we don't have images, but you know, we can talk for ages and we <laughs> have a whole verbiage and a whole panoply of, of verbal systems for enhancing the power of the magic. One thing that Jews do all the time in all these different genres is adjuration. I adjure you and I can adjure angels, I can adjure demons, and in a way it seems as if there's no difference between the two. I never adjure God. So this is another interesting thing there. You see, it's, it's, a, it's very interesting that it's a magical system, but it's a magical system that in a way is subservient to the monotheistic idea. Because it's not that there's only God and that's it. There's God and there are angels and there are demons and whatever. But you mess around with the angels of, and the demons. You never mess around with God. God, and by the way, in Sefer Arazim, you also see it very nice. Because in the lower heavens, there are many angels and you they're in charge of doing different things and you tell them what to do. When you get to the sixth heaven, there are very little, there's very little magical activity. And in the seventh heaven, you find God sitting alone, surrounded by angels who sing his praises, and there's no magic. You don't go to God and say, I adjure you to make my son healthy. You, they would never even think of doing something like this. This would be blasphemy. So you, you adjure the angels, you adjure the demons, you leave God, you know, sort of God is above the magical system which is very, very different from what you find in the, in the Greco-Egyptian magical text, where you can easily say to Horus or to Isis, you know, you do so-and-so, otherwise I will, you know, you, you threaten the gods, you do various things with them. In the Jewish tradition, you, you employ the same systems towards, or the same mechanisms towards angels and demons, but you always remember that there's one god above the entire system. That is very distinctive. Indeed, that's something Yamblichus in the De Mysteries has to explain away. Porphyry says, "What okay. you know? How can you explain this threatening 
the gods business. And he's like, ah, oh, we're not really mm-hmm. threatening them. It's just the language. But the, the language has a kind of mysterious effect. But of course we can't threaten the gods because they're impassable and so on and so forth. So presumably if we had a philosophic expose of how magic works from a Jew of late antiquity, which we sadly don't, they wouldn't even have to deal with that issue. Or they could maybe say, well, yes, like the non-Jews, of course, they threaten gods all the time, but their gods are not the real deal. We don't threaten God. So this is real. this is really proper monotheism at this stage. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. there's a lot of time. I, I think this is how I read the, the, the ancient Jewish magical text. I often see texts that adjure angels, including adjuring them by God or by God's name or by he who created the world, the world and all kinds of circumlocutions like that for God. But they don't adjure God himself. And I assume, by the way, this I can't prove, but I assume that in many cases, the very same Jews who are doing that also pray to God. You know, they also have another sphere of activity where they have all these pious prayers to God. And the one does not negate the other. You see, this is again why I don't think that they think that what they're doing is forbidden magic. Mm. They say, look, my son is sick. So A, in my daily prayer, I will ask God or in whatever. When I pray, I will ask God to make my son healthy. But I also go to a guy who writes an amulet where he adjures the demons to leave my son alone and adjures the angels to help my son become healthy. And there's no contradiction between all these activities. Now, I'd love to ask you a little bit about the specialists who are producing this material, which of course is going to be getting into speculation territory a little bit. But before I do that, does it make sense to talk about, aside from what you've just said, which is this this sort of monotheism that we see across our evidence base, does it make sense to talk about late antique Jewish magical culture? Or would it make more sense maybe to talk about Jewish magical cultures? Because we have different linguistic groups of Jews, they're in different milieu, and so on and so forth. This is a more difficult question. This is a more difficult question where I'm not sure that we can answer. And again, because as you mentioned before, when when you deal with ancient history, the problem is always what sources do you have and how representative are they? Now, on the one hand, as I said before, we have a lot of sources for Jewish magic in late antiquity. This is one reason why I like the field and why we can really, you know, we have enough textual material that we can analyze. On the other hand, as I said before, the textual material consists, first of all, of, let's say, something like 2,000 incantation bowls. But I'm sure that the Jews who produced the incantation bowls also produced many other types of texts, magical texts, that happened not to have been written at all or not to have been written on durable material, so I don't have access to them. So I have 2,000 bowls, but I only have bowls. And on the other hand, I have more than 100 amulets written on metal, but I don't have many other types of textual production, magical textual production of late antiquity. And for example, if you would ask me about the Greek-speaking world in late antiquity, uh, Greek-speaking Jews in the world of late antiquity, and what did their magic look like, this is already getting much more complicated because we have many Greek magical texts, but we don't know which ones of them are Jewish and which ones are not. So here, for example, it could be that their magical culture is different from the magical culture of the Jews who are doing the bowls and the Jews who are doing the amulets. And even between the bowls and the amulets, you can sometimes see differences. So, for example, in in Sasanian Babylonia, they would have many more demons than they do in in Israel, in Palestine at the time. But again, our evidence does not really suffice for for this kind of, uh, for looking sort of at inner strands within the Jewish magical tradition at the time. 
thank you. That, that's a, a laudably careful answer, and but still yeah. informative to some degree, right? We we get a picture that there are these different groups, and uh, you know it's very interesting that with the Greek speaking Jews, we can't really always tell because they don't, there's no obvious linguistic marker, like they're not writing in a Jewish language. But the fact that we have all this material, magical material in Greek from late antiquity, which involves Jewish figures and lots of angel names. Um, is this Jewish magic? Is this Greek magic? Is this Greco-Egyptian Jewish magic? Um, maybe, maybe that's the wrong question to ask even. Maybe there's some kind of fluid magical culture going on in Greco-Egypt that there's multiple participant groups in and they kind of are borrowing from each other and sharing stuff. I mean, obviously there are Jews who are Jews in, in Greco-Egypt. We know this. And there, and there have been since um, antiquity. But to what degree do they have their own magical tradition that's really set apart from other traditions is an interesting one. Of course, all these answers don't exclude each other. It could be that some of these materials are common to everyone. Some of them are specific to Greek-speaking Jews. It would be very difficult to, to know exactly. One criterion, I'll give you an example. One of the things that you see when you look at the, at the things that we know to be Greco-Egyptian, let's say the Greek magical papyri, let's say PGM-4, you know, the great Paris magic manuscript, you see there are a lot of Jewish material. You see the angel names, you see Yao all over the place, as we said before. You don't see a lot of biblical references. That mm. is one of the things, and again, you asked me before about characteristics or specific features of Jewish magical texts or the Jewish magical tradition. One of them is an extensive use of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. In the amulets, in the incantation bowls, again and again and again, they would recite biblical texts or verses. They would refer to biblical precedents. They would mention King Saul. They would mention David. They would mention Adam. They would mention all kinds of biblical figures. When you move to Greek magical texts, in some of them you find a lot of biblical quotations, but in many of them you don't. And again, the more in the Greek magical text, the more biblical material you find, the more I will be inclined to say this probably was written by a Jewish scribe. This is probably written by someone who, it's not just that he heard about Michael and Gabriel and Yao and Sabaoth, but he knows his Bible. Mm. So, but again, then you get the problem. Maybe he's a Christian. Yeah. So, so when you move to Greek language text, the picture becomes much more complicated. It's much easier when you're dealing with Aramaic and Hebrew, because then you know this is Aramaic, this is Hebrew, this is the square script the Jews are do are using. So there you have linguistic criteria, objective linguistic criteria for classifying this material as Jewish. Now. Let's turn to the topic of who is producing these magical bowls and magical amulets and so on. Because, you know, one of the fascinating things about this evidence is building on what you said earlier about how it, we don't really have reasons for seeing it as being like kind of forbidden magic in the, in the way magic is often caricatured as this sort of, by definition, the dark shadow of the mainstream religious worship, right? So you, everyone's going to the synagogue and doing their early rabbinic stuff, but then afterwards one shady character goes, I'm going to win the horse race. So he sneaks off and finds a magic practitioner and says, give me an amulet to win the horse race. No, a lot of this material we find in synagogue contexts even, or in the context of the, with the bowls, I believe they're often found in the, sort of in the context of a house, like it's built into the house itself as a kind of protection for the, the house. So we don't have much evidence, or if, if any, that this stuff is rejected, dark fringe material. It's much more like this is part of, daily life, right? 
for, for yeah. some Jews who are interested in this sort of thing. About that, I have no doubt at all. And if you look, for example, at rabbinic attitudes towards amulets, they take it for granted that people are wearing amulets, and then their debates are, are you allowed to carry your amulet outdoor on the Sabbath when you're not allowed to carry extra luggage? So is this a part of your garment? And you know, you take it just like you wear your shirt, you don't go outside naked? Or is this some kind of a luggage that you're not... So this is the debate. But the fact that you, you do have an amulet, you know, that six days a week is no doubt at all. So, so it's just a question of... And, and then they, they have another question. Amulets, when they touch impure things, what kind of impurity will they get? So they talk about, they say they talk about a bowl, a bowl, and they talk about, about a feeling that you put on your head, and they talk about an amulet and other objects that have an insider thing and an outsider thing. And then there's a question of, okay, what happens when they touch something impure? But the fact that you have an amulet is, is it's obvious. It's like today you would talk about people having a, a, a wristwatch or, or, or a cell phone, you know. So it's obvious you have a cell phone. The only question is on the Sabbath, what are you supposed to do with your cell phone? This is, this is the analogy. Got it. And when I find these amulets and when I read these ancient amulets, it's very clear to me that these are the amulets that the rabbis also knew. They're, they come from the rabbinic period. And the rabbis never really uh, never really say, let's try to regulate what's written in the amulets. Let's tell this Jew that in his amulet he has something that's forbidden. You, you never get discussions like this. They just don't care. They don't open the amulets. You have an amulet, you have an amulet. Okay, so that's... Uh, so in that respect, it's very clear to me that all this activity was legitimate. Who is doing the production? This is a big question because these guys, of course, are anonymous. Now, they're anonymous not because it's forbidden. It's not something where, you know, they're afraid of some inquisition, so they go underground and, and they don't try to identify themselves. They're anonymous because they're professionals, just like your plumber doesn't sign, you know, when he fixes your plumbing, he doesn't sign at the bottom, this was fixed by so-and-so and date so-and-so. So the people who write amulets or, or incantation bowls, they never identify themselves. They never, there's no colophon where they would say this was written by, you know, Yohanan ben so-and-so on, on whatever, in place so-and-so. They, they don't identify themselves. What you can do, because we have all this, these sheer quantities, we can try to see, for example, in the incantation bowls, one of the things we can easily see is that there are varying degrees of just scribal competence. You look, you look at these bowls, and some of them are amazing in terms of the quality of the writing. And this is not an easy writing surface. You write inside a three-dimensional clay bowl. It's not two-dimensional, so it's not a normal writing surface. And it's not a standard writing surface because it's clay. It's not really easy to write with ink in some with some thin brush and ink. So uh, w when you look at the bowls, you can really see different levels of writing competence. And some of these bowls are, are amazingly written. And when you think of the fact that these bowls are written, that the texts are written on the inside of a three-dimensional object, and they're written with ink on a writing surface that is not really not really a standard writing surface, let's put it like this. And then um, you see that some of these are very well written. So they were clearly written by people who were professional scribes, who knew what they were doing, who first of all had a lot of experience in writing such bowls, because it's not, I'm sure that the first and second and third bowl you write, 
they don't come out so nice and neat. So they yeah. clearly have a lot of experience. And they probably have a lot of experience writing other types of documents. I, I had a PhD student, Abigail Manekin Bamberger, who wrote on this issue. And one of the things, for example, she could show is that in many of these bowls, you also get legal formulae used against demons. So they're used in a magical context, but there are still legal formulae that you also find in other Jewish legal documents in late antiquity. So this tells us that probably the guys who were writing these bowls were professional scribes. You know, just like today in some countries where illiteracy is rampant, you have, uh, you know, outside the courtroom, there would be someone who is writing petition for people who are illiterate, and they come to him and say, look, I want to petition, or I want to appeal, or I want to do something, some legal transaction. You know how to do it. I will tell you the case, and you will write it. We know of people like that in antiquity. We know of people of scribes who are writing documents. And it's quite likely that some of the bowl writers were professional scribes who wrote many texts and also wrote bowls. Again, the paradox is that all their other texts, you know, marriage documents, uh, divorce documents, legal contracts, letters to people, petitions to the government, all that was written on papyrus and parchment. All that rotted long ago. And the only thing that survived is the magical text that, because of the genre, were written on clay balls. So some of these guys probably were professional scribes. Others were rabbis. We have discussions in rabbinic literature about demons and about amulets. And, for example, there's a very famous story where they tell a story of a, a rabbinic disciple who wrote the wrong amulet. He didn't know, he didn't really, you know, do his learning properly. And he wrote the wrong amulet and the amulet didn't work. And the guy who was infested with demons and got an amulet that didn't work, then he went to another rabbinic disciple who knew how to write the proper amulet and then all the demons had to leave. So even the rabbis tell you here and there that rabbis too or people in their world are also writing amulets. And I would say that you also have physicians who are writing amulets, that at least some of the amulets were written by people who were healers, physicians. And again, we have evidence of that in the ancient world. The crossover with medical stuff is is quite familiar, I think, to people who looked into magic in antiquity with any at all, because one of the, the chief things people ask for is health or being cured from this or that given problem, right? But the the potential crossover with the legal, I mean, I guess we can't talk about a legal profession per se in that milieu in that period, but someone who, who spends a lot of time writing court documents um, may or may not be an expert on Torah, but at least writes a, a really good Hebrew or really good Aramaic. And part of their job is making uh, what we would call magical materials. Mm-hmm. This is a fascinating scene and a very different scene from anything we're used to nowadays. Except maybe, I dare say, in certain circles nowadays among Jews where you have uh, rabbis who are still skilled in this, presumably, who can who can whip you up an amulet for a particular case, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So first of all, yes, and I can even show you 
you know, this uh, we we don't have a visual aspect to a, to a blog like this, but but I, I I keep on getting images of objects from all parts of the of the world, and people ask me what is it. And for example, there was a, a famous trial in Australia of some Orthodox Jewish woman who was accused of sexual harassment of her female students, and some of the Orthodox Jews who came to the trial came with amulets. And then an Australian journalist sent me, she took with her iPhone, she took images and she asked me, what is this? Can you explain to me what's going on here? And I said, yes, I know these amulets. They're just bringing their amulets to court in order to help the woman who they want to be acquitted in order to help her in court. So yes, we, we have many documents like this to this very day. But remember, even think of what I said before, that one of the very characteristic and recurrent techniques in ancient Jewish magic is the adjuration of demons and angels. This whole issue of adjuration, of course, you do the same thing in a trial. You adjure the witnesses to tell you know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, or any ancient equivalent of that. So this idea of using words in order to force people to do something to confess the truth, to say what they did, to bear, you know, honest testimony or to do something for you. This is something that there, there is more overlap between legal systems and magical systems than, than we normally think about. Yeah. If you look at speech act theory, this okay. comes out very clearly, right? Because, you know, what what happens when a priest says, I pronounce you man and, man and wife? Or what happens when a judge says guilty? All they're doing is saying a mm-hmm. word in theory. But in practice, the word has major repercussions, right? Um, you go to jail, you get married, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So in this case, well, the difference, I guess, is that while everyone can agree that the judge is real, and everyone can agree that the the man or woman that you're marrying is real, not everyone agrees that the angels are real. And if, if I, I agree, but this is our modern our modern prejudice. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a complete modernist and completely secular, and I don't believe in angels or demons. But I always try to avoid the mistake of even thinking in these terms when I think about people in antiquity who clearly were convinced that angels and demons exist and saw evidence of their presence all around them. Mm. So they, they, they would tell you if you would go with them in the middle of the night and, and the dog would start barking, they would say, yes, the dog saw demons. So just like you know, and of course you will admit it, that dogs smell things that we can't smell. Dogs also see things that we can't see. And if they start barking, they saw a demon. And if your child is sick, you would say, you know, your child, your mother, whoever, someone is sick or you are sick. You would say, well, I have, I have a flu. These germs got into me because my neighbor sneezed on me. They would say, you know, there's a demon and the demon went into me and I became sick. And of course there are demons. You, you see that you're sick, right? Yeah. I mean, what better proof do you need that demons exist? Yesterday you were healthy. Today you are sick. You know the demons exist. QED. Um, it. What's interesting is to get back to your trial, your courtroom example. The the people who are bringing their amulets to the courtroom clearly think this is going to give their um, their the the horse they're back and the the woman that they want to get off. This is going to give this is going to help her out, right? So we're going to get some angels on side. We're going to get um, you know like bring to bear forces to make her win this court case. But if the court in Australia, recognize the existence of angels and demons, that could potentially be seen as a kind of um, unfair biasing of the jury or something like that, right? They'd be like, no, you have to get those amulets out of here because that's 
this is a fair trial, right? So there would be like legal issues about having amulets. But by just denying that, you know, just that stuff doesn't affect our mm-hmm. legal system. There's no conflict. Mm-hmm. Now, in a Greco-Roman polytheist context, this mm-hmm. this does become, and this is a very, very different context from the Jewish one, this really becomes an issue in, in certain court situations. Like, did you did this person use magic to influence the outcome of this of this trial if they did they're guilty that's illegal stuff you know you can't do that of course the best example is apuleius's apology you know his speech defending himself against the accusation that he's a magician Hmm. and one of the things that he says which is very interesting and very true he says look if you really thought i'm a powerful magician you would never bring me to trial because why am i here then yeah, why am I here then? Because you, you by actually being, bringing me to trial, you, you prove that you're not really afraid of my magical powers. So it's a very interesting kind of sophistic way of uh, wiggling himself out of the accusation that he's a magician. Yeah. And by the way, we get the same logic in rabbinic literature where the rabbis say that, or well, there's one, let's say, rabbinic, very famous rabbinic, dictum by Rabbi Yochanan, where he says that in order to sit in the Sanhedrin, in what would might be translated as the Supreme Court of the Jewish legal system, you have to be a master of magic. You have to be Baal Kshafim. You have to have many qualities. You have to be old and respectable and, and you know, and relaxed in attitude, etc., etc. But you also have to know magic, to know Kshafim. And when the explanations of why this is so one reason given is that if you would not be able to practice magic yourself you would be afraid of magicians who are coming to being tried because then you know they have greater power than you so they have to know and you have to know that anything they can do you can do better and that's like a sine qua non for sitting in the jewish supreme court by the way this is yet another example of how no one is really worried by the fact that this is supposedly forbidden and this is supposedly, you know, you're liable to death by punishment. No, the, the attitude is completely different. I don't think that in a Christian world you would find a statement saying, or in a Christian text, you know, in order to be a Christian judge, you have to be an expert in magic. No, you this would not. A very Jewish way of looking at things. And, and again, it's one reason why the Jewish magical tradition looks so different. From, from other magical traditions. That is absolutely fascinating. And I, if we take the third Abrahamic um, example of Islamicate world, there we have something different from both, I would say. You, you do also get the idea that arts that we might want to talk about as magic and also occult sciences like astrology and alchemy are sine qua non of being a well-rounded individual and may well be sine qua non of being, for example, a sheikh of a Sufi order or or uh, a qadi, like a, a, ju- a local judge. But it's not exactly the same as in the, the Jewish realm either. And I look forward to exploring the differences as we get into uh, the seventh century and beyond and look at Islam. Gideon Bohak, thank you so much for speaking with us and stay esoteric. I will, I keep on doing my research. <laughs> <laughs>